All right, all right. You like each other, I get it. Well, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 21, continuing our march through the Bible. And this evening, we get to start with a little murder mystery, so a little change of subject. And it's going to go through a couple different laws and a couple different um, situations over there. You got to fix this thing up here, it's too loud. I get all starts echoing, and then I start hearing myself, then I get all self-conscious. <laughs> all right, there, they got it. <clears throat> all kinds of technical difficulties this evening. Um, just pray for that, and then also we want to make sure we're praying for the youth while they're gone at camp. And let's go before the Lord, open up in a word of prayer, and jump into chapter 21 together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the work that you're doing in our lives, the work that you're doing through the study and also in the youth as they go off to camp and spending time with you. We pray that they would be growing in their own personal relationships with you. And we lift up this nation to you. And we pray that your will will be accomplished this evening as we grow in your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as promised, let's look at our murder mystery together in verses 1 through 6. If anyone is found slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer, which has not been worked and which has not pulled with a yoke. The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of the city, of that city, nearest to the slain man, shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Then, oh, I guess I get all excited. just want to keep reading. So this is shown also in Numbers chapter 35. That is, when there's a murder in the land, when there's injustice in the land, that innocent blood defiles the land, and God's judgment is upon that nation until there's a rectification for it, until there's a, a resettling of accounts. Now, this is very fascinating because the beginning of this chapter and the end of this chapter are going to be showing us specifically Christ's crucifixion on the cross, his resurrection, and his atonement for us, for, for our sins, past, present, and future. But I want to make sure that we connect right away that the law leads man to Christ. The law doesn't save anyone. And so the law is showing that even though there's no one to punish, they don't know who did it. They're supposed to go and run an investigation. They're supposed to try and find the culprit. Who murdered this person? What, what happened? They can't figure it out. They don't know what to do. And so they've got to go to the nearest town. They find the leaders. They find the elders. And they're going to try and launch that investigation. But when they can't, they're responsible for getting the heifer. The Now, when we think about sacrificing an animal, <clears throat> it's always important for us to put ourselves in that culture. 
This animal is fully grown. It has not been used for work. It is, set, it is ready to go. It is prime. It has been expected for use. This is income. This is power. This, this is like having a brand new work truck with all the bells and whistles, no scratches, no dents, ready to go out to work. And it's like, nope, we're going to take that away from you. But on top of that, the comparison fails because this animal can reproduce. It can make more of its kind. And so this is a big loss to sacrifice this animal. It's more than just economics. It's a part of who they are. And they've been feeding this animal and washing this animal and keeping it clean and protecting it from wild beasts so that it could produce for the family. And instead, it's going to be sacrificed because of this injustice. Somebody has died. But then we see something else. When they do pull the Levites out, and when they do sacrifice this animal by the water, what do they do? They have to wash their hands over it. They have to rinse their hands over it. It's kind of weird. But what they're saying is that the matter is taken care of. It's done. Blood for blood. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. Which makes you wonder, then, how is God taking away the sins of Jews today? There's no more sacrifices. There's no more temple. And the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. Well, they'll say that they have their day of Yom Kippur where they all fast and they pray and then God forgives them. But there's no, remit, there's no blood sacrifice. There, there is a cost. There's a cost associated with this. Now, I'm going to start giving you some little nuggets. What other times do we see washing of hands in the New Testament? When Jesus Christ is before Pontius Pilate, Pilate washes his hands and said, this, I'm innocent of this man's blood. This, is, this, is, this guy has done nothing wrong. And it's a foreshadowing of this here. They're washing their, the priests are washing their hands over the sacrifice. It's done. This is innocent. We brought justice. We brought rectification. Now let's read verses 7 and 9 together. Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people, Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people, Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. Removing the guilt on the land. And so we have to be very careful when we have Old Testament laws and then we live in a New Testament age of grace. In the Old Testament, there would be a literal physical judgment on Israel every time they disobeyed God. And that cycle would continue over and over again. But God has taken that judgment in the New Testament. Those of us that are living by grace alone, by faith alone, in the age of grace, God took that punishment, that judgment upon himself. So the Lord doesn't deal corporately with nations the way that he once did. I won't say he doesn't do it at all. I, don't, I won't say that. But I will say that it's not the same. Because people will say when there's a big storm or there's an economic issue or whatever crisis we're going through, this is God's judgment on America. No, listen, listen. I've said this multiple times. If God judged America for our sins, he would wipe the place off. And then talk about Iran, China, 
North Korea, what Russia's doing right now, if God literally judged us for our sins, he'd wipe the whole place off. Well, if you go to the end of your book, he's going to do that. And his judgment is going to be poured out on the planet. And he is going to do that. And so we're living under the age of grace. So when we do look at issues like the age of grace, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going all over the place. But when we do look up issues with the age of grace, and we still see those issues coming to us, and we wonder why they happen, a lot of times it's A, we just live in a sin-cursed world. Storms happen, catastrophes happen, tsunamis. Another issue is that we're dumb and we make bad choices. You know, if your nation lives on credit for a hundred years in a row, and then suddenly you got to pay all the bills, you get into an economic crisis. You know, if you Apparently, money's not worth as much if you print a bunch of it. You know, that as you sow, that shall you also reap. I know, crazy stuff, crazy stuff. That, so I want to be very crystal clear about that because it'll come up every now and again. The news will get going. We'll get in a tough situation. Christians will be out there. It's God's judgment. Don't be silly. You know, don't be silly. We couldn't handle God's judgment, nor will we in the book of Revelation. In the church, we're spared from it. That's why it's so important to understand our eschatology that we are to be taken in the air because we are not appointed unto wrath. All right, I want to roll back. I said all that to say this. We need to ask God for forgiveness for the things that we are doing in this nation, the things that we are, quote, unquote, getting away with, the innocent blood. It's unfortunate that there are portions of our culture that are applauding injustice. They are celebrating and provoking injustice. Our culture in America today, we are eating ourselves alive. We're going after the peacemakers, the police, those that are trying to restrict evil, those that are trying to stop it. We're praising criminals. We're praising praising and encouraging rioters and those that are destroying our country. We're calling good, evil, and evil, good. And we're not guiltless. We are guilty. And and God is going to allow us to reap what we're sowing here. And if you apply it to that blood guilt, that, hey, even though nobody knows what's going on, God still sees the injustice. Whether it's murder or theft or ripping people off or the different crimes that are going on so the question for us is what do we do about it everything comes back to the gospel and that's what deuteronomy chapter 21 is showing us even though it's showing us these laws that bring guilt we're seeing that forgiveness and justice and as it says here atonement very important word in verse 8 atonement comes from god And so when we turn to God, when we turn to Jesus Christ for salvation, the Bible tells us in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. But if you don't have the sacrifice, the judgment of God remains. If you don't have the sacrifice of the ox, the judgment is on the land. If you don't have Jesus Christ as the offering, the atonement, the substitutionary atonement for that sin, 
then you have his judgment upon you. If you do not accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and receive the Holy Spirit, you are going to receive the judgment of God. There's only one way of salvation. Jesus said, you can only come to the Father through him, through me, he said. One way. And so we need to be very clear. There are, there are cultural issues. There are society issues in the United States and across the world. But they can only be solved by Jesus Christ making us new people and new creations. Things are getting worse, yes, but the gospel remains powerful. It remains the answer. Without substitution, substitutionary atonement, we are guilty. At that time, it was with the blood of bulls and goats, but the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that God was not satisfied with the blood of bulls and goats. He wanted a broken and contrite heart. He said to obey is better than to sacrifice. And throughout the Old Testament, it showed the necessity of the Messiah, and then it gave us the evidence and the prophecies in advance of his coming so that all of humanity, any human being who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right, well, we're going to have a seeming, we're going to have a couple change of subjects, but we're going to see how they all tie together, and then we're going to go right back to where we started. Typical, right? So verses 10 through 14. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and desire her, and would take her for your wife, then you shall bring her to your home, bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house, and mourn her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free. But certainly shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. Whoa, 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 whoa. That, that, seems, that seems terrible. That seems rough. Man, we, we can't do that today. I mean, that's just the worst thing on the planet. Again, we want to talk about things in their original context, in their original cu- culture. And then we want to talk about some biblical principles. We want to be good Bible students. Number one, is this great cruelty or is this great compassion? In that time frame, in the ancient world, human beings have no rights. They have no freedoms. They have no right to exist. They are property. If you are the strongest male with the most weapons, you are in absolute control. Women don't have rights to do anything. You're just property. Children, nope. Even into the first century, even into the New Testament era, Greek and Roman fathers had absolute authority over their children. They could kill them with no judicial ramifications because it's your property. Same thing goes for slaves. Slaves could be tortured. They could be destroyed. They could be starved. They could be abused. They were considered property. The vanquished enemies, less than property. And so here, to be good Bible students... We need to understand the difference between proscription and description. Proscription means that God is telling them to do something. Description is God is explaining how something is. So God is explaining 
here. He's describing what's really happening. They're going to take wives. They're going to take women. And then he's giving a proscription. You need to take care of them. There are limits. Now, at this time, this is incredible mercy. Fast forward to the 21st century, and we look at this and we say, this is absolute insanity. In fact, the United States of America spent hundreds of thousands of lives in the Civil War to stop slavery from happening, to end it once and for all. But we want to look at things in their original context. If they were looking at that back then, they'd be like, really? Come on. Then we have to ask ourselves, why do we in the 21st century have this standard to begin with? I told you in the first century, all people were property. When did we start having women's rights? When did children start getting rights? When did we have human rights? When did we get a bill of rights? When did people start even doing this? It was Jesus Christ who brought this in. Jesus Christ is the great liberator, not the great enslaver. Everybody's got it backwards in our modern societies, in our modern universities, and they want to attack the Bible and say, look at it. It says it can have slavery. It says it can take captives. It's genocidal. It's saying to destroy things. We've we've matured past that. Uh, No. No, we've only grown in the gospel of grace that Jesus Christ has revealed to us because you can only know the Father's heart by knowing Him. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We saw that with the adulterous woman. We see that at the woman at the well. Both those women were absolutely guilty. They were considered property. They were to be stoned. They were to be outcast. They were to be destroyed. And Jesus showed great compassion. It doesn't mean they were not guilty. They were guilty under the law. But we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. And he takes our punishment so that he who sets free, he sets free indeed. And the New Testament that says there is no longer Jew or Greek, Scythian, slave or free, male or female, we have all been set free in Jesus Christ because he's the great liberator of people. So what what are some principles that we can take from this situation? I look at some, and it may be a stretch. But if you have a young widow who's lost her husband, maybe lost her family, been into a great tragedy, and then now they're in a new family, like how, how are you supposed to handle that? How do you cancel somebody like that? Number one, there's an important time of mourning. Here, there's a time of mourning. Hey, give them time to weep, to be on their own, to grieve for at least a month. Just letting it all out. But then there's a time of redemption. Shave your head. Cut your nails. Start from scratch. Start all over. And it's important that men and women that have lost loved ones, they've they've gone through great tragedies, you can continue to live. You're not defiling their memory. Start over. Start afresh. Identify with your new spouse. You know, we're doing counseling with people that, are in a new marriage after losing a loved one that's died. It's, it's very difficult. There's a lot of heartache. How often do you speak about that person? Do you dishonor their memory because you're speaking about it to the new person? Did you make the new person jealous? Those are things you work through. And we see the nitty-gritty of life here. This was a real problem they would have. This was a real situation. 
you know, the Bible speaks about all aspects of life, even the most difficult, nitty-gritty, dirty, hard, rough areas of our life. It shows us a lot about humility here, grief, redemption, and ultimately freedom. Hey, this person's lost everything. And if you don't want to support them, you don't want to keep them, you don't want them in your house, then you're going to let them free in a culture that says, well, just take them down to the woodshed and just get rid of them. It says, nope, you're not going to treat them that way. Here's another illustration, a different situation, verses 15 through 17. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have both, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, and if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. Again, we have description versus proscription. Is God saying that you can have more than one wife? No. No, he's describing here that people are going to do it anyway. And when they do it, there's going to be problems, so don't do it. And that's what we find here. Because the Bible says you can't have two masters, you're going to love one and hate the other. Every time we see polygamy in the Bible, in the Old Testament, what do we see? Loves one, despises the other. Always going to have issues. And you would think that this would have been settled. But what do we see in our culture today? That nonsense is coming back. Uh, you know, you're starting to see things in the culture. I don't even remember some of the names of it. But like dating multiple people, being married and having open relationships, being married. They got TV shows about having multiple wives. They got all kinds of weird family things happening today. If we want to call them families. It's disgusting. It's against God's will. We have gone through this for millennia. Why are we relearning how bad of an idea this is? If we want to be crystal clear, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Why is marriage and family under attack more than ever? because it is trying to attack the very foundations of our society and of the Word of God. That God created Adam and Eve, created them together, that they were to complement each other, that they were to establish family. God established family, and Satan is trying to destroy it. Marriage is between one man and one woman, and they are to raise children establish that family to make under the authority of God according to God's word and then they're to reproduce they're to multiply and restart that over and over and when you get married you leave your families you cleave from your mother and father and you create a new family with a new authority structure why is that so important because it's an illustration of Christ in the church that we are the bride of Christ, that He is our groom, that He's coming back for us, that we're going to be in the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are vital. We, we cannot negotiate on these fundamental truths of God's Word. 
When you do that, you're getting rid of the foundation. Now, let's get back to our context, right? What was he talking about? We went off on marriage. He was talking about when you have two wives, when you compromise with God's word, when you don't do it his way, there's going to be problems. And let's say you, want, you love your second wife more than your first wife, and you have your firstborn son with your first wife. In that culture, in that society, you are going to give a double portion to the firstborn son no matter what. Whatever we're tweaking is getting worse, not better. Um, so no matter what, if you have four sons, the, you're going to split your portion. You have three sons, you split it into four portions. First son gets a double, the other ones get evened out with the rest. And that was so that the family legacy on the family property was always going to remain the same. It wouldn't get diluted over time. Because remember, Jewish law is based on the land. The land is the priority of the law. American law, the United States law, is based on rights, individual rights, rights for property, rights for freedom, the Bill of Rights, based on those individual freedoms. So things are different back then. Why would you do that? Like, why, why would you get two wives? Why would you compromise? I don't know. Why, are you, why do people cheat on their spouses today? And then we have families that have multiple, gener- multiple kids from multiple parents in families today all over the place. Remember, the Bible is descriptive as much as it is proscriptive. We live with real people, with real sins and real brokenness, and God has taken those sins and separated them as far as the east is from the west. But we still have to be careful. We still need to be real with our broken, sinful hearts. We can't love one child over another. I praise God that he does not love one of us over another. Because what is the proof of God's love? That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That he gave his only begotten son. That's the proof of God's love. And so we have received a double portion. We have been given gifts of the Spirit. We have been given the Word of God. We've been given a new heart and a new creation. We're the firstborn child, even though as Gentiles, we came from a different branch. It doesn't matter for Him. You know, to me, it's so reassuring. You will not find a normal family in the Bible. Not one. What is a biblical family? Father, wife, or mother, father's the leader, the spiritual leader of the home. The wife is also a spiritual leader of the home, but under the authority of the husband. He's the provider. She's the homemaker. The kids are homeschooled. They go to church. They grow up to be evangelists and pastors and start great families. Like, that's what we think a perfect Christian family would be like, right? You can fill in the details a little bit different. Does not exist in the Bible. They got multiple wives. They got children. They're killing each other. They're committing adultery. They got sodomy going on. I mean, look at King David's family. That is a train wreck. But David is a man after God's own heart. What about the family of God in the New Testament? Ananias and Sapphira are getting struck dead. They're stealing from each other. They're separating. And then we have all these corrective epistles. The the very first churches have nothing but problems. If you think I'm lying, come on Sunday morning and let's see how crazy the Corinthians are together. Does it, isn't that reassuring? Isn't that reassuring to know that God deals with us who we are, where we're at, with what we got? Instead, people will use it to attack the Bible. If anything, it proves 
the God of the Bible more than ever. Well, now let's look at the uh, last few, or no, I, I fib to you. We've got two more sections. Next section, 18 through 21, we're going to seemingly start working our way back to the beginning here. Verses 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away this evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And y'all be having arguments about spanking. It's like you're, you're having the wrong discussion. <laughs> no, all jokes aside, what is going on here? This is an adult son. This is not an adolescent son. This is not a TJ teenager. This is an adult son who is a drunkard. He is rebellious. And the parents have not given up on him because it says they have chastened him. Verse 18 is important. The rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them. So they, they tried to bring the discipline. They tried to do the tough love. And he's still going crazy. Well, this is a societal problem. Remember, we're going to keep things in their context. This is the Old Testament law for the nation of Israel as they go into the promised land. But broken families mean a broken society. Broken families mean a broken society. And if we do not hold our children accountable to the same laws that we are held accountable to, if we don't teach them manners, we don't teach them how to look people in the eye, we don't teach them how to work hard, we don't teach them how to get up and make their bed, we don't teach them how to be respectful to their elders, you don't teach them that stuff, it is bad for all of society, much less your home, because it affects all of us. So this is such a big deal that they're to take rebellious son down to the city gates. That's the courthouse. That's the police house. That's, the, that's where everything's happening, the center gate. That's where business is happening. And they're to have this case in front of the elders. This is a society decision. It's not, I'm sorry, Jim and Jill. You guys are terrible parents. You need to go back home. No, the society is going to sit there and say, wow, you guys have tried everything you can. Little Johnny, this is your last chance. I don't care about them. I don't care about you. I don't care about anything. Well, today we make a movie about it, and the guy becomes popular. Back then, the society, the, the men, the leaders of households, the leaders of the culture would say, absolutely not, and they would stone him to death. That is a disgusting, brutal, terrible punishment. Exactly. Exactly. Am I saying that we need to do that? No. Do I jokingly use this on my firstborn son? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Guilty. But <clears throat> I take it a little out of context. <laughs> but the whole city has to be involved in this. Listen, we need, the church needs to be engaged in culture. We cannot take the easy way out. Well, that's the pagans, that's the Gentiles. They just do whatever they want to do. We'll just do whatever we want to do. I don't think so. Not unless you want to be more unsafe in the middle of the night. Not unless you want to be more unsafe with your daughters out in the middle of the night. 
uh, in sometimes in broad daylight. Not if you want to be like, um, oh gosh, it just left me. Lot, thank you, Lord. When you want to be like Lot and have people groping at your door to assault and to touch the people in your house, if you want that to be worse and worse, then just be quiet and just let them go. No, just come, Lord Jesus. We know things are going to get worse and worse. No, we need to be engaged in the culture. We need to be loving. We need to bring the truth of God's word. We need to not... we need to not bring the condemnation against them, but we need to stand up for truth. We need to stand up and say, no, I am a Christian. I believe in the Bible. I believe in doing things the way the society's done it for 204, over longer than this country's even been alive, since 1620 when the pilgrims came over. Society has always been based on these fundamental truths, and we need to continue to do that. Does that mean that I want the worst for people that don't prescribe to that? No, but we need to make sure the norm is the norm because it affects us all. The Bible's very clear about that. And we are starting to see it. Now, remember, though, Sunday mornings. The gospel went out in a culture that was far worse than what we're dealing with right now. But we just can't be not engaged. How do I know that? Because it tells them to pick up stones and to, to kill that man. It's so important. We're not called to pick up stones and to kill somebody, but sometimes we need to get some stones thrown at us because we're sharing the truth. When Stephen was stoned to death for preaching the truth, he just wouldn't be quiet. Well, he could have just kept it in the church. He could have just gone home. Nope. Paul, stoned either to death or almost to death to being in a coma. All he had to do was be quiet. Just don't say anything about the Bible. Just keep it in your synagogue. Just keep it in your house. Don't say it. No. And what did he do, Paul, in the New Testament after he was stoned unconscious enough that he went into heaven if he didn't die? When he came back to his right mind, he said, let's go back. And he went right back in there. You know, in 2022, United States of America, we're not being literally stoned yet. But we're taking some criticism. We're being ridiculed. We're being laughed at. You may not get a promotion. You're going to get kicked out of the military. You're going to get kicked out of your government job. Yet things are going to get tough. It's only going to get worse. But if you're going to get ridiculed and mocked and kicked out for anything that's remotely based on the fundamentals, family, truth, being able to criticize somebody without being quote-unquote canceled, You might as well stand up for the thing that's worth your soul, Jesus Christ himself. So it's time to take some stones. Realize that we have a voice in this culture too. We have have an obligation to share biblical morals and mores. We've just been beat up so long, we just start to think it's normal. It is not normal. Nothing about what's happening now is normal. Now let's finish up verses 22 through 23. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Hanged on a tree, left out there to rot. This is a fate worse than death. That's where the saying comes from. It's a fate worse than death. Dying isn't enough. If you die and your corpse is hung up on a pole, put up on the city gates, put up on a tree, 
and is left overnight, that is a fate worse than death. And the Bible prescribes it only for the accursed of God, those that are forsaken of God, the worst of the worst of the worst. And yet, Paul in Galatians chapter 3, he is quoting this verse when he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Speaking of Christ's crucifixion. That the blessed of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so we're circling back around. The guilt, the blood guilt, the judgment of God is poured out on the face of the planet. The only way out of it is through Jesus Christ. He hung on a tree. He took that judgment and that punishment. And just as those priests were washing their hands over that heifer saying, no, we're not guilty anymore. And Pilate washed his hands in front of Jesus and said, I'm not guilty of this man's blood. What did they cry out when Pilate offered Barabbas? We want Jesus. Crucify him. Crucify him. And then what did they yell? His blood be upon us and our children. Little did they know the curse they called upon themselves was a blessing for all those who chose him. Because we are covered in the blood of God. He is our substitutionary atonement. That means he took the judgment upon himself for us. And we can live without judgment. We are righteous, holy, perfect, and true. Not because of us but because of Jesus and what he has done for us. That's the, proof, that's the proof of his love for us. And we want to share that to everyone. Yeah, we may take some stones. We may we be beaten. We may have some crazy families. We may have some crazy lives. You know, we may be really, really messed up. But if Jesus has given us a new heart and filled us with his spirit, we are also a, a man after God's own heart like David was, a woman after God's own heart. The grace of our Lord is, is just too good to be true, and yet it is. It's unfathomable, unthinkable, beyond what we can ask or think, and yet he pours it out. So, yeah, I know your families. You guys are messed up. <laughs> so am I, and so is my family. But these families that we have are worth fighting for. The Bible tells us that. We may have trials and we may have crazy battles out there to fight, but we're to go out there and fight them in the name of the Lord representing Jesus Christ. Because he was shamed, accursed on that tree for us. Can't we bear a little bit of shame for him and his truth? I pray that he empowers us to do it. So let's end this evening praying and interceding. Remember, we want to be praying for those kids and their personal relationships with the Lord because Lord willing, one day they'll start their own families if the Lord tarries, and we'll continue to pass these truths on. We also want to pray for those that are in authority for our society, for our culture, and pray that the Lord would use us to represent him however he sees fit. Lord, we thank you so much, and we pray that you would continue to, to teach us and to guide us when we're to speak, when we're to be silent, when we're to go to the courts, when we're not to go to the courts, Lord, when we're to take the beatings and when we're supposed to just be silent. Help us with our families. Help us with our issues, Lord. Help us with our trials. And we just want to see you glorified above all things, Lord. Because apart from you, we can truly do nothing. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.